Whoa. Before we get started, I want to go over the four sponsors for this episode who make all this possible. They're fantastic, so go show them some love. The first is the best URL in the industry, Crypto.com. They're a crypto platform with one goal, driving mass adoption. That's why we're all here, right? To get every human on earth a digital wallet and to get them using digital currencies. Crypto.com is helping people do that through buying, earning, lending, and a new card payment. Everything you could want is at Crypto.com. They've been longtime supporters of Off The Chain and recently announced a new exchange. So go help them out, download their app from the App Store, or visit Crypto.com and tell them Pomp sent you. There's nothing better in the world than a company helping to drive global adoption of this new technology. Another part of global adoption is making sure that we secure the various blockchains with computing power. CoinMine has built the best consumer experience in mining. Hands down, no competition. If you want to help secure the blockchain and get started in mining, you can go to coinmine.com slash Order a CoinMine, it'll arrive at your door, and you simply take it out of the box, plug it in, and connect to your Wi-Fi. You'll be mining your favorite crypto in five minutes or less. It is honestly magical. I have one running right now here in the office, and it's super quiet, it's got no heat, and every person that comes in the office asks, what is that? Every single person asks. It's a coin mine. The best part to me is that the coin mine comes with a mobile app that's super slick, and the company continues to push over-the-air updates to the device that add functionality, add tokens that can be mined, or increase the efficiency of the device. Similar to how Tesla does car software updates over the air, CoinMine's sending these passively to thousands of CoinMines around the world on a periodic basis. Pretty damn cool. When Farboot and the team pitched me on the idea of an Xbox or PlayStation-like box that could mine cryptocurrency in your home, I was immediately sold. I invested in the business, have a device personally, and keep telling people to go to coinmine.com pomp so they can save a lot of time if they want to get started mining today. And CoinMine has a partnership with our third sponsor for this episode, BlockFi. BlockFi is one of my favorite companies in crypto because they allow users to deposit their assets in a deposit account and immediately start earning interest. Think about it. If you keep your digital assets on an exchange or in cold storage, you aren't benefiting from any yield on the asset. With BlockFi, they allow you to deposit crypto and then get paid interest on a monthly basis in crypto. Deposit Bitcoin and want to get your interest payment in ETH? You can do it. Deposit Bitcoin and want to get your interest payment in Bitcoin? You can do it. The rates at BlockFi are currently some of the best in the industry. You can earn 6% interest on Bitcoin, and you can earn up to 8.6% APY on GUSD deposits. I'm an investor in the company and think BlockFi is building really important and compelling infrastructure. So go check them out at BlockFi.com slash POMP. Again, that's BlockFi.com slash POMP. And that brings us to the last advertiser of the episode, eToro. These guys have absolutely crushed it over the years. Their founder, Yoni, was one of the original Bitcoin OGs and has been ahead of almost every trend in crypto. He built eToro to help people buy, sell, and trade cryptocurrencies, but he added a few twists, social trading, copy trading, and virtual trading accounts. Social trading is a feature where every asset available on the platform has its own separate social feed where people talk about the asset, share trading ideas and analysis, and even include various charts or graphs. Virtual trading accounts is targeted at beginners. If you're just starting out and want to try trading with play money, eToro will give you a virtual account with $100,000 in it to test, learn, and get comfortable. And so, then that brings us to copy trading, which is by far the coolest feature. This allows you, as a user, to select any other user's portfolio to copy. If you see someone on the platform you like, you can set your account to mimic their trades. They buy Bitcoin with 5% of their portfolio, your portfolio buys 5% Bitcoin. They sell 50% of their Ether position, your portfolio does the same thing automatically. 
Copy trading's awesome, so go join the 10 plus million other traders on eToro and start trading all the most popular cryptocurrencies today. They're one of the largest companies in the space, and you can get started by going to eToro.com. Again, that is eToro.com, where the entire team's ready to get you started in just a few clicks. And don't forget, go subscribe to the Off The Chain daily newsletter. You can go to offthechain.substack.com. I write a letter of news, analysis, and opinion every morning that goes out to more than 40,000 investors. See you there. What's up, everyone? This is Anthony Pompliano. Most of you know me as Pomp. You're listening to Off The Chain, simply the best podcast in crypto. Let's kick this thing off. Andreas Klinger is the head of Remote at AngelList and was previously part of the founding team of Product Hunt. In this conversation, we discuss the future of work, the rise of remote work, best practices for managing remote teams, and a list of actionable productivity hacks that Andreas has seen work well in the past. I really enjoyed this conversation, and I hope you do as well. Anthony Pompliano is a partner at Morgan Creek Digital. All opinions expressed by Pomp or his guests on this podcast are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Morgan Creek Digital or Morgan Creek Capital Management. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Pomp as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. All right, guys, bang, bang. I've got Andreas here. Uh, we are recording this on a nice rainy day in New York City, so uh, thanks for uh, for braving it and uh, coming on. Hey, folks. Um, cool, man. Uh, we've got to know each other uh, over the last uh, year or so, a couple of months, whatever it is. Um, I'm super intrigued by you are probably one of the people who are most bullish on uh, remote work and kind of where the world of work is going. So uh, maybe let's just start with uh, kind of your time at Product Hunt and, mm-hmm. and kind of that story, and then we'll get into you know where the remote work uh, focus came from. Mm-hmm. So quickly about my background, I, was, uh, I did a bunch of stuff, which is not that interesting, but lately I was the founding, part of the founding team of Product Hunt. I was a site CTO there. Uh, we sold to AngelList roughly two and a half years ago, a fully distributed team, uh, people from pretty much most of the regions we usually hired between West Coast and Eastern Europe. Um, um, after we sold to AngelList, um, I joined for one year uh, CoinList, the crypto team. Mm-hmm. Uh, did like VP of engineer there. And since beginning of this year, I kind of focus on my main passion, which is kind of promoting remote work as mm-hmm. a concept. Um, and especially now as in the Bay Area, it becomes, we have like this critical moment where we have enough people starting to understand that it's actually a viable option and in many cases even a better option so what i'm kind of trying to do is my little part to make this a little bit faster yep so let's talk about product hunt and how the team there worked because i think um a lot of people uh, they kind of saw it as um you know a project really not a, not even a company at first um and then from afar looked like there was this uh group of people who started all just helping out right mm-hmm. um but nobody in the beginning realized that i think ryan said multiple times that he was really working out of coffee shop mm-hmm. right and, and kind of people all over the world were, were contributing to this so maybe talk a little bit about how um you got hooked up with the uh, with that founding team and then kind of where the decision to build a remote team versus uh, kind of a more centralized uh, team in a single office came from yeah so I think it's pretty much spot on. Like all of us believe that this is a side project. Like when I joined, um, like I was actually working on my own startup and then ran out of money. Uh, like I literally forgot that I had to pay taxes. Mm-hmm. And I was like, okay, I need to go back to freelancing for a few months and then continue. And Ryan at that point was a bit of advising 
and helping and I was so f embarrassed and like gave him a call and I was like that's bad you know I'm an idiot but I will go a few months of freelancing make some money and come back and he was like do you maybe want to like help me a bit because I think this is going somewhere at some point and I was like sure but I don't think you can pay me uh, but it's fine I will work for free and or like whatever you pay and on the side work for clients who pay proper rates mm -hmm. weirdly enough I it was like from day one constant like fire fighting and all this kind of stuff and like we had like a huge growth spurt in that uh, time and I never really got to work on any other clients a few weeks later all of a sudden he was like I think we can get into YC and I was like dude like no <laughs> I, I, I received my rejection from YC like a few weeks ago they, they started the cohort it's done you know like maybe later and he was like no I think we can get in uh, two partners independent of each other actually approached him about it mm -hmm. didn't know about the other one mm -hmm. like okay maybe we can still get in so we got into YC all of a sudden then he told me I think I can raise money and like okay I spent so much time in my life not raise, like, like f messing up by raising money and focusing on that instead of the product mm -hmm. and right now the product works like let's focus on that and don't get distracted You're like no nah, i think i can raise a million I'm like oh please no please not all not all not, not that again right now it's like how much do you have even committed so far and he's like more than a million and i'm like okay i think we can raise money <laughs> so all of a sudden this thing that all of us believe to be a side project that we really wanted to do had budget and we could actually focus full-time on it mm -hmm. and at that point we were already remote but more out of the fact that we got everybody involved who kind of we liked and was able to help and then I started hiring some of the best people I know, which don't happen to be in the same small city. Mm -hmm. And at some point I was like, do we actually do this intentionally or not? Or like, are we continuing this way? And because I already ran remote teams at that point, but it wasn't really like an intentional decision at that point. It was more like an, it happened because it happened, because mm -hmm. kind of like that's how the setup was. And uh, we decided, yes, this is an intentional decision. Uh, we actually managed to raise money from Anderson Horowitz at that point. And I remember like this, we had like this internal party where we like get a bunch of people together, celebrate the fundraising. And a friend of mine who is a VC told me like, hey, this is amazing. You raised some money, now you can get an office and get everybody over and finally become a real company. And I was like, okay, that's, uh, maybe, maybe no, maybe we are already a real company. And oddly enough, the same friend is now promoting remote work on Twitter. So I think we're now at this tipping point where it's kind of like becoming aware for the Silicon Valley area that's usually living in their own bubble. Yeah, so let, let's talk a little bit about two things, right? Yeah. So one is um, you backed into one of the best pieces of advice I ever got, which was if you keep your personal burn rate low enough, yeah. you can always accept opportunities that maybe can't pay you as much in the short term, yeah. but long term can be quite uh, lucrative yeah. or, or valuable. Um, and so when you said to Ryan, hey, I'll work for whatever you can pay me, and then I'll kind of figure out how to make money yeah. you know, the, the rest of, um, of my time, uh, it really allowed you to um, you know, kind of grab an opportunity rather than if you had said, hey, look, I got to get paid you know, $100,000 and I have yeah. uh, come from this big corporate job and you just, you can't afford me. Maybe talk a little bit about, you know, had you always spent your life um, you know, kind of with that mindset or was it more just um, serendipity and, and that's how, where you ended up? I think I was in a fortunate position at that point because we completely tanked our previous startup and I had like a huge somewhere between burnout and midlife crisis. Mm -hmm. So very fortunate position to be in because it also allowed me to, uh, I literally sold everything I had and had like one piece of luggage where everything was in. And I was constantly like living between cities I know that are cheap 
uh, and like for example, like constantly trying out new stuff. I was mm. like trying out new projects and all this kind of stuff. So by default, I was really, really cheap at that point. It was ridiculously cheap. If I look now back and like look at my Excel sheets from back then, I'm like, how did this even work? Like, how did I get enough nutrition? <laughs> you know, like how did like what cities? Huh? What cities? That was Berlin back then. Berlin. Yeah, but back then Berlin was ridiculously affordable. Nowadays it's a bit more expensive, but like still. And uh, honestly, I think I could not have done it if I wouldn't have been that dirt cheap at that point. Uh, that being said, when you grow up and you get like a family and everything, it's like a little bit different, obviously, like more responsibility and everything. But I think the general fact here is true. Like if you have, if you manage to be on a low burn rate, you have more opportunity and that would always be true, especially for founders. Got it. And then the second thing is um, this balance between focusing on fundraising and, and kind of taking a bunch of time away from that mm-hmm. uh, of building the product or just focus on building the product. It, it feels like, um, again, as I watch this kind of play out from afar, uh, you guys focused on the product, the product took off and uh, people really liked it. And then the fundraising interest came inbound, right? So you didn't have to yeah. spend time going outbound and, and taking a bunch of meetings, et cetera. It was more of you built something people wanted and investors recognized that. And then they came and beat the door down to, to invest. It was the complete opposite. Like the startup I did before, uh, we managed to raise around, I don't know, 1.5 million or so. And we need, we were back then in Europe and we got like every bad advice that you can give to a team. We did literally everything wrong. Uh, we had at some point, we had a business plan, like nobody writes a business plan, but like we had a business plan in two different languages. We had a financial model that could do balancing and like the craziest stuff. We had multiple pitch decks, multiple variations. I was so good in like pitching it in so many different ways, but we didn't spend enough time on actually building the product because we were like kind of advised to focus on that, you know? So, and that in comparison to product hunt like in the first startup we had an answer for any question that a vc might answer uh, might, might ask us but literally any question answered we had at some point we had a flow chart where our whole process back then we produced uh, garments for a vertically integrated e-commerce store and we had a flow chart that explained our process which was uh, four meters long and but like on a font that's barely readable mm-hmm. uh, there's a photo with me next to this flow chart and the flow chart is roughly more than twice my size and at Product Hunt, we, I experienced what the difference is if you have actual traction. It, mm-hmm. Like traction literally solves every problem, especially mm-hmm. when it comes to fundraising. And we were in this ridiculous position to be the one hyped company at Y Combinator back then. And um, anybody who has ever been to Y Combinator, there's always like one or two companies that stand out in that batch, you know. And if you're one of those, you literally get overrun with offers to invest. For sure. And, and part of the... Uh traction solves everything mm-hmm. is just there's an inevitability of success right so that's where the hype and the yc batch comes it's like mm-hmm. oh of course they're going to win mm-hmm. right um and so employees want to work there partners want to you know work with that company uh investors want to invest and and um it definitely reduces the friction to building a company but you still have to stay disciplined and focused right yep. so, so it's not just oh you've got a little bit of traction in the beginning guaranteed you're going to win um it really does come down to can you figure out how to um, you know, to, to kind of scale the product and, and continue to build a product that people want mm-hmm. uh, without getting distracted. Uh, absolutely. And the other thing which most people don't tell you, it's, it's extremely terrifying. Like, I remember regularly looking at our charts, everything going up to the right, and I was like, I don't do anything different right now, or at least I feel I don't do anything different with the companies where nothing worked. 
So maybe I have absolutely no control over this and maybe it mm -hmm. stops tomorrow and I don't know how to make it start again. And sometimes you unlock something where you understand your actual growth mechanic and like later on we managed to do that. But early on it was kind of like jumping in and just keeping this thing afloat and just like like swimming with it as much as we can. And to be frank, this is this is terrifying in a way, especially early on. It's a good, terrifying and maybe in a good way, but still... And the other thing which I didn't know back then, and now that I invest myself a little bit more, a lot of investors actually just try to get into these deals to do like sticker collecting, you know, just prove that they have access. Yeah. And buy logos. Buy logos, exactly. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of almost like to this point, like there used to be this saying, like nobody ever got fired for uh, in, buying IBM or something mm -hmm. like that, you know. And it feels almost like with a lot of VCs, it's kind of like get into the hype deals, especially if your fund isn't that credible yet. You know, that's like the one number one thing to build up credibility. You have these logos and all this kind of stuff. So sometimes it's less about a judgment about you even than it's a judgment about the current moment of VC. Mm -hmm. And nowadays that I'm investing myself, I kind of see that. Back then I was uh, kind of like, had the, the, the blind founder POV almost on it. Yeah. And, and the part to me that... Um of, around this terrifying feeling, mm -hmm. right, is uh, I've been a part of a couple of uh, products or companies where they've just absolutely exploded in growth, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, they're hitting the tops of whether it's the App Store or some other, you know, metrics that are pretty uh, identifiable and quantifiable. You want to continue to iterate and improve the product, but you also don't want to mess it up, yep. right? And so it's like, hey, look, this is working. How far do we actually go to improve it mm -hmm. versus if we make a change, it could hinder that growth? Mm -hmm. And then the second thing is I, I always joke about um, you don't understand uh, what you describe as a terrifying feeling until literally the servers are like melting. Mm -hmm. Right, and, and and it's literally growing so fast that it feels like you have to keep spinning up, you know, whether it's AWS instances or, or whatever, to actually keep this thing working because mm -hmm. you don't have the pleasure um, and kind of the benefit of having all the systems in place of a, of a larger company. You don't have the headcount, so so you have to do things that I think is more kind of um, scrambling to keep mm -hmm. things together, uh, which on the outside looks like wow, that company's growing really fast. On the inside, people aren't sleeping. There's a lot of kind of stress, right? All that stuff's going on. So I'm assuming that that's what you guys were dealing with too. And then you add on the remote layer on top of it. Yeah, absolutely. The, the other thing is also, in my opinion, there are teams that scale with a code base that wasn't meant to be scaled. Mm -hmm. And there are teams who don't scale. And there's almost nothing in between. And uh, we also had this like in the beginning, uh, most of our problems were homemade. They were just like, we didn't do our homework properly. We didn't have the time, right? And so we constantly had like performance problems for like completely in things that can be done properly, but we didn't have the time for it. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's a, I highly recommend, I, I wish everybody in the world has one like this 15 minutes of ridiculous growth you know, mm -hmm. in the in future. I, 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 it's, it's a very important experience to learn. It also kind of like uh, lets you learn a little bit about what are the things that you actually need to have under control. So what we did extremely aggressive was A-B testing a lot. We did a lot of like uh, feature flag rollouts, a lot of sh dog launches, a lot of beta testing. We, we it, it was to the point that we shipped, we tried to, sh we had a like, very aggressive uh, shipping cycle. We, had, we basically had this idea of having public announcement about new features and products every i think back then it was two or th two weeks two and a half weeks something like that with the idea of like even with 
product feature A doesn't work right now. We wanted something else to kind of show, to, sh to give this ex perceived feeling of hype as well, to keep this going, right? Uh, so we were very aggressive about that. And I remember at some point we, we tried out features and products which were literally just a link and a type form, you know, mm -hmm. and just to see if there's something. And then if yes, double down on it. And we had so many of those in parallel. And I personally think this is how any startup should operate nowadays. Yeah, it's the narrative, right? It, mm -hmm. it is that inevitability of success. Um, and I, I recently saw uh, a number of uh, venture capitalists on Twitter talking about like the way that you raise capital uh, with a deck they were specifically mm -hmm. talking about is around the narratives, right? Yep. So the world exists in this way today. Mm -hmm. We're going to do this thing. After we do this thing, the world's going to change and here's what it's going to look like in the mm -hmm. future. Mm -hmm. What you guys were doing, uh, I think, was you were iterating so quickly and, and uh, there was this feeling of like, even though it was only every two weeks, it felt like every day there was an announcement, right? Just because it was happening so rapidly. Um, and you could quickly see uh, and kind of let your mind expand into what could this become, right? Mm -hmm. So is this today just a way to discover products? Mm -hmm. Could one day they help with hiring? Could they help with this and that? Mm -hmm. and, and, and you really kind of saw the test as, um, if you were paying attention, hey, they're testing to figure out where the demand is. And mm -hmm. then when you would find it, it seemed like within weeks you would roll out the actual you know functional product mm -hmm. and um, and then that was a whole other part of the business that you know didn't exist just a couple of weeks ago. Yes, right. Um, talk about uh, the experience of um, combining forces with AngelList and kind of what the what the logic there was. Mm -hmm. So um, the interesting thing with AngelList was that they were culturally and. Um, like by their goal as a company, very much aligned with us. So mm -hmm. AngelList had this overall mission of following the arc of a startup. So you're kind of like, you find your co-founders, you have an idea, you launch, you raise money, you hire people, and you sell the company at some point. And AngelList is very much like trying to help startups with all the high impact moments of this journey. So Product Hunt was kind of like this moment and then you launch. And that was kind of like this part that really fit well. And one thing that we always were like struggling with it. So we, we, we monetized through subscription. We monetized through uh, ads and all this kind of stuff. And we were like in a good shape that we didn't basically die by default. But we were always like, okay, technically the biggest angle to this would be through investment and this kind of like basically monetizing the hype and all this kind of stuff as like into investments and all these kind of things. So for us, the whole partnership or merge with AngelList came almost like kind of natural. I was originally actually against it because I was like, no, we raise more money and we go like go crazy. Uh, looking back, that was actually the best thing we could do at that point because team-wise and culture-wise, the teams overlap really well. Um, and a lot of the people who were at Product Hunt now lead teams in uh, AngelList and, um, and so on and so on. So... I think it's a. It, I think this was like one of the best decisions we did as a company. Easily, um, the the interesting thing that I also believe is what's kind of like shows how good this is a fit is is like how many people of uh, Product Hunt in the end also like started their own fund. Many of them through tools that AngelList provides. So I think there's like a very very well aligned culture and people fit. For sure. Um, and so you uh, today serve as the head of remote at AngelList. Mm -hmm. Describe a little bit about what that is, and then we can get into some of the actionable advice around uh, remote work. Yeah, so technically it's... So that the, the amazing thing about this title is that nobody knows what this title is supposed to mean. And 
by now I actually just keep it because it's so confusing. It's it's kind of like it sounds big, right? Uh, the, I think a better title looking back would have been Head of Remote Products. So AngelList has uh, the largest uh, job board for startups and it's also the largest job board for remote work in startups, but barely anybody knows and it's a, there's a lot of functionality that just doesn't work well with remote teams. So my job is basically to make sure we um, align the product into the right direction that it actually works for remote teams and remote candidates really well. And so it's actually more like head of remote products, right? Mm -hmm. And this whole angle of like being in charge of the remote culture of a company, which a lot of people associate with, is actually what I not really, I'm not really paid for that. You know, that's not my job. Uh, nowadays, what I actually think is, even though if I don't do the job of a head of remote, that like this cultural aspect, I believe that's a very valid job for a lot of larger teams that are either remote or remote first. Um, and for example, at GitLab, there is Darren, who is now the head of remote there, whose main job is to make sure that internally they work more and more efficient and it works for everybody that like any learning they have at some part of the company can transition to the rest of the company so that the team works best possible way all remote. Got it. And so let's get into kind of why is this becoming so popular, right? This, this idea of remote work, um, I think a lot of folks would say remote work is the equivalent of the future of work. Uh, and we're seeing um, really the startups, I think, have kind of pioneered here. And now you're seeing some of the larger companies jump in as well. But just like, what's the what's driving this trend? Is it more technological? Is it societal? Is it a mixture of things? So personally, I think there's nothing particularly new about this. Okay. What happened now is more that in the big tech hubs that usually were very bullish on having everybody in the same place, and that's mainly San Francisco Bay Area, a little bit New York, that they are now like seeing as an alternative. And they now have enough, the VCs especially now have enough I would say data points to have alternative pattern recognition in like, okay, this can actually also produce a large company like GitHub, GitLab, Sapier. There's like enough data points. Yeah, they can basically, they can apply the typical pattern matching now. And that is more what changed. That's more like why it's perceived now as like a, as a hype topic. And I also think we are now in a, in a weird moment of time where it's perceived as a thing. I'm pretty sure in four years from now, we like we couldn't have a podcast about remote work. It would be kind of like talking about smartphones. You know, mm -hmm. it's like why do you call it a smartphone? It's just a phone. And the same way in four years, like why do you call it remote work? It's just work. I just happen to work for a company in Boston. You know, and if you look at the underlying trends, um, more people working online, more people working in digital knowledge work, and more people working internationally with international teams. All of that have the logical conclusion that uh, remote work is like a, by default. And I think we're now at this point where we don't even, even if we think we work non-remote, we actually most of the time already work remote. So many people are checking their email on the way to work, are working on Friday from a coffee shop, are working when they are like uh, on a business trip and working like all-nighters or whatever there. And technically all of that used to be called telecommuting. And uh, all of that technically is remote work. So we're now switching actually from an binary equation of like remote work yes or no to more like a spectrum where it's no longer about um, are you working remote or not it's more like on this two by two grid of how far away are you from uh, the next hub like the next headquarter and how um, distribute your team is across time zones of the people you work with so basically how asynchronous do you work so axis one is basically how easy would it for you to become to come to a headquarter and axis two is like how asynchronous is the team you're working in 
And I think this will be more the discussion in the future. So the discussion will be more like, like how asynchronous do you want this team to be? Do you want to hire people in more than, let's say, five to eight hours of time zone difference? Is this something you actually want to aspire to? You think, no, this is like going to kill our productivity. There's remote teams that require everybody, like Envision requires everybody to work on Eastern time zone, you know? And that by default excludes a lot of people. There's most remote teams only hire in their own country. American remote teams are notorious for only hiring in the US and best case in Canada. Um, most remote teams are actually best case hiring in their own time zone, roughly, you know? So there's a lot of already now like this, this it's almost like a spectrum discussion already now. And I think that's just like where it's going. And we're kind of like in this weird moment of time where remote work is kind of like a concept that we still intentionally can talk about. And in, in future, it will be much more like, okay, I have people in different time zones and I have to find ways that the synchronous work works better. And we will focus more on these angles. Got it. And, and so as you get into the remote work, I, I agree with you that, uh, you know, four or five years from now, it's just be work. Um, but there's a lot of... Uh, I don't, I don't want to say fear, but kind of uh, trepidation in terms of um, people just immediately going from 100% centralized, everyone comes into an office to, uh, let's say, 100% remote, right? And so a lot of this is uh, around building a business. And mm -hmm. what I want to do is spend some time just on the actual advice of if I'm a entrepreneur or uh, a manager and I want to start to either bring on people uh, into a remote work mm -hmm. uh, kind of scenario or I want to build my team 100% remote, things like, you know, how do you see people running meetings, right? Mm -hmm. So that's kind of like an easy one where, uh, yeah, there's conference calls and things like that, but if you have folks who are in different geographies, different time zones, et cetera, you can't get everyone to walk into the same conference, you know, table and, and mm -hmm. uh and hold a meeting. So like, what are some of the best practices you see there in terms of uh, just meetings for remote teams? I think one of the important parts is here to understand where you currently are on a company. Like if you think of it like as a spectrum line or whatever, and where you want to be. And so for example, the typical problem is hybrid setups, you know, and that can be eight people in the office and two people in that team not being in the office and trying to call in into the uh, meeting. And then pretty much being like, screwed right like it's hard to understand everybody you're constantly out of the loop in communication etc et they're kind of like second class citizens second class citizens yeah. and that's what a lot of people associate with remote work and the problem you have here is that uh, if you're in the office it's very very easy to talk about something and very annoying to write something down if you're remote it's very easy for you to write something down and very annoying to like talk synchronously about something at least for a longer time so what's happening is not that, that like one is better than the other. It's just on different communication layers by default. So what you need to be, in the, for example, in a hybrid team is you need to be very intentional about the bridge between this. And the problem is that humans will always tend to the thing that's easy. They will always go for the thing that's like just more approachable and easier and like basically we all are lazy by default. So there, you need to be a little bit more aware of that either by discipline and discipline usually doesn't work for most people um, or by setup and for example in hybrid teams what I recommend if, for example if the whole company isn't remote first or isn't all remote have a critic like have sub teams where in this sub team a critical amount of people is remote 
so that this team needs to work remote first, that they by default do their discussions in like hangout calls and not over the table, that they by default need the process to be optimized for the majority of the team versus of the two people who happen to be in the office. So for example, you it's very common that you have your infrastructure team remote, that you have your customer care team remote. Like, and this kind of like sub-team approach works really well because that way you get like the learnings you can bring into the rest of the company. Um, other things here is... Uh, if you cannot do that, for example, because, for example, you need to do like your all-hand meeting where the majority of people happens to be in the office, what I highly recommend is have the people who do talk call in so that everybody's on the same communication layer, that everybody can ask questions the same way, that everybody hears and understands the same way. So if you know that there will be like two or three people who give a presentation or like who will talk, discuss something the majority of the time, have these people call in so that you have the same layer for everybody. And there's a few other even tricks. if they're in the office. Even if they're in the office, I know I know teams where it's literally like everybody goes into the meeting room and like two people go into the phone booth, you know, and that's by intention and that's I think creates a better culture internally. Got it. And the tools that you see people using for let's say these meetings that involve uh, folks that are remote, whether 100 percent or uh, some in the office, uh, Google Hangouts obviously mm-hmm. I'm assuming is a big one. Are there other tools that you see people using that you think are uh, are pretty positive? So in general, I think most teams don't have a tool problem. I think most teams have a process problem. We used to have Skype and HipChat uh, and email, and that worked good enough. Now we have Slack and Zoom, you know, and email, and it works good enough, you know. There is, in reality, more process problem. That being said, there is always, like, a little bit of iteration around tooling, and, like, there's always, like, lessons to be learned. Like, what I'm a big fan of is, like, recording meetings and then having automated, like, while you take notes live, you automatically are timestamped to to parts in that video. There's, like, grain.co that does, like, something like that. There's a few other companies that do that. Uh, a big fan of that kind of approaches but in general it's much more about like having a process so for example it needs to be important that somebody takes notes it needs to be important that like that it's very clear what the decisions afterwards are it's very clear what like who is the action who who like takes the action item like who owns it and so on and so on and that necessarily has nothing to do with remote work that's just management 101 the problem you have in most remote teams is you can't as easily monkey patch or like uh, hot fix uh, bad management like in or bad processes in in, in a co-located uh, office if you have a bad process about something and there's constantly people a little bit unclear you just i don't know quickly talk about it in a meeting and like come on the same page and then you disperse you can't that easily do that in a remote team so what you end up doing is you are thinking about more intentionally about your processes and uh, which in general is good but if you're like yet super small and early you know uh, you need to be careful not to over engineer those processes so otherwise you're basically yeah slowing down because of that obviously for sure and, and a lot of what we've talked about so far is with synchronous meetings where mm-hmm. everyone's there at the same time um i know that there's some remote teams who either through time zone mm-hmm. or personal preference uh they feel a need uh, or want to hold asynchronous meetings meaning that uh how do we share information and communicate but we're not there all at the same time mm-hmm. what have you seen there is kind of the way people are doing that or, or doing it well this is like the one thing where I think currently the most iteration is happening in in, in tooling and product. It, it's usually much more around uh, uh, proposals and documents and like having specific communication around those and coming together, like co-create a document. And that's usually what's happening more. Um, and there's multiple teams who have uh, uh, like all the folks distributed everywhere. Um, 
and some of them do it religiously like Duist is one of the I would say more, more aggressive ones that have all the team anywhere what I noticed though is in most of those teams and most of those companies that are extremely distributed even in those teams the sub teams who work with together a lot tend to be roughly in the t- same time area like roughly five hours overlap three hours overlap worst case so like some overlap has to happen um, so like the mobile team maybe or whatever team um, or like the, the management team, leadership team, they're roughly in the same time zone area because it's just, you otherwise lose too much time around this. The other uh, counterintuitive thing is like, I highly recommend that remote teams re- meet as much as possible. If you like, you have a sub team and you have a project kickoff, a larger one, like get everybody together. You have a company and like you, you fu- figured out that you pretty much hit the wall with something. Get everybody together. Even if in you have, person. In person. Even if you have nothing and it's just like, celebrate or or not even that like just being human get everybody together like mm-hmm. do offsites quarterly half year whatever you can do uh that by itself is usually the biggest lever for any process problem in reality for sure um and, and then in terms of uh how do you think about um documenting information mm-hmm. and, and sharing information so not actually meetings right where mm-hmm. you and i need to talk but uh more around this process stuff right mm-hmm. so uh i'm going to uh, put notes into the code right but i also have non-technical uh areas of process or commenting etc like, like how do you see teams doing that today so the the biggest learning i had here is for example as an engineer you know that you are building your code to support whatever you have now and that in six months, if the thing actually scales, if the thing is actually worth your time, you will refactor the parts that face problems. You might even refactor all of it, but usually you refactor the parts that have problems. And that's also true for management. You are, if your company is growing, you will refactor how you work every six months, like as a rough nutshell. So whenever you feel like you hate process problems you hate that the fact that people are misaligned you will hate you hate the fact that there's communication problems there is constantly misunderstandings or whatever all of these kind of problems don't go away they're just getting replaced by other process problems on the long run and you just need to accept that almost and need to basically say okay what works for now what is good enough for now uh, do that Make it explicit. That's the most important part. Like make it explicit to the point that the things that your team already is doing, it should be aware that this is like we do this intentionally. And these two or three things we don't like we don't care as much. Like if you want to do them, do them, you know. But like these few core rules we expect you to do. Make this very explicit. And when you start like wait for problems to happen, and when you start seeing those problems to actually pop up and cause um, trouble try to address these specific problems individually and again like refactor only that part of the process one of the biggest risks that you can do as a company is kind of like mentally masturbate about like how your company should operate and they come up with this really really complex um, answer for every question that might ever be asked like this big gantt this big flow chart i mentioned at the beginning right and do that for processes that's the biggest and like that's the easiest way to wreck your company in my experience for sure. And you mentioned management, right? Mm-hmm. The kind of, uh, I know you've given a number of talks on like yeah. managing a remote yeah, team. Yeah. How, how does that differ from managing a non-remote team? Um, so personally, I think that remote teams have, I, I, I usually say like 5x the process needs. And I say 5x the process needs because it sounds really nice in a tweet. In reality, it's more like I would say 3x, but that doesn't sound that retweetable. Um, but 
main thinking here is if you are a team of let's say five you roughly act as if we would be a team of 15 to 25 people in a co-located team if you're a team of like 10 people in a remote setup or remote setup you roughly act as if you would be 30 to 50 and that goes on and then at some point you hit like this logarithmic scaling point where if you're like 200 400 people you don't work as if you would be more than 1000 or something like that and so in, in reality, you have like a little bit more awareness around processes and you need to be, I think like the biggest learning here for me was like you, you manage processes and you lead people versus you manage people. And I think this is the biggest learning I had here. So you kind of like want to get to the point that people can self-manage and make decisions on their own. All right. So explain this. You said you manage processes, but you lead people. Yeah. Elaborate on that. So your job as a manager is to... Uh, define the processes and like how you expect people to work internally and process isn't like this this huge chain where 20 people have to hand over something like we have this very negative connotation with the word process in startups is almost like a word people try to avoid uh, process just means explicit expectation so for example uh, in an engineering team, I might expect that the people, when they start working, the first thing they do is that they review code of other people. And I expect them to do that before they do their own stuff. And the reason I expect them to do that is, so for example, that other people are as unblocked as early as possible, right? So if you have people working across multiple time zones, there will always be somebody who has reviewed your code before you come back next day, right? And that's an explicit expectation. That, that's not a complex handover. That's just an explicit expectation. That's a process. And these kind of processes, you want as few as, uh, few as possible, you know, but very, very explicit. And everybody in your team needs to be aware of, like, what are your expectations? And you regularly need to tune them, re-engineer them. Like, we basically figure out that some of them don't work for you anymore. Your team's scaled now. It's, like, too hard for you now to review every code. You know, like now, how do you prioritize here? How do you expect people to make that? And that's, again, it can make this expectation explicit. And so in reality, as a manager, you manage processes. You, you, your, your job as a manager is not to make decisions. Your job as a manager is to figure out, together with your team, what decisions need to be done, who does them, and make sure these decisions are made. And ideally, you want the most capable person in your team to make the decision wherever they're most capable about. And to have a process where this person is actually enabled to make these decisions, run with these decisions, that's your job as a manager. So you need to set up a team where everybody can actually run with the problems they like to run with the problems and solutions they have and are enabled to actually do that. And what we call, uh, what I usually call um, optimizing for single player mode. So they need to be able to run the game on their own. And it doesn't mean like never work with anybody else, but not being dependent on other people unless they want to. Imagine you're running Mario and you press jump and all of a sudden it's, okay, thank you for pressing jump. Please wait until the other person comes online. This would not be a very popular game for Nintendo. So the goal is like, how can you be as autonomously as possible and then pull in people for quality work and pu uh, pull people in for things where you actually want to pull them in. And this is kind of a like your job as a manager comes in, like how can you enable people to do that? And the, the sad truth here is as a manager, every problem in your company, every mistake that anybody does is ultimately your fault. And so it's, it's very easy to blame your engineering team if something goes wrong, to blame whoever if something like, blame your CTO if something goes wrong. If you are in some way or fashion, and we have this weird term of like being above somebody, right? Like if you're managing them, that area somehow 
it's ultimately your fault because you either did not create the right context for those people to succeed, you did not um, hire the right people, you did not fire the wrong people. It's in some way, form or fashion, your own fault. And that's kind of the thing that you need to learn as a manager. What you're talking about is really giving people the autonomy to uh, do the things they think are best, right? You have to really trust them. Uh, they've got to um, essentially be successful on their own, and you mm -hmm. add up all those individual successes, and it makes the team successful. Mm -hmm. But that's all built on the premise that you hire the right people, right? Yes. And so how do you think about um, any changes to the hiring process uh, when teams are remote, uh, given this kind of more you know, autonomy um, driven uh, work style mm -hmm. versus maybe if they were coming into an office, is there a change? So I think about this a lot actually because head of remote products at AngelList, right? Um, You're supposed to have all the answers. <laughs> yeah, I hope <laughs> at some point, like in five years, maybe. Um, my so my biggest learning here is actually that um, kind of if you hire across bigger regions, um, usually your typical hiring pattern recognition breaks down. So you might not know the university this person went to. You might not know the company they worked for. You don't know. You, you might even struggle understanding cultural differences. You know, like why is this person, why, why does this person look pissed off all the time in this call, you know? And that's just no Germanic person. Yeah, I, I, uh, that's just me, you know, rest, resting bitch face, you know? It's just like you struggle maybe with these little differences. And it, in, in especially, for example, if you're used to hiring in tech hubs, it kind of breaks down if people don't follow these patterns. Um, my number one lesson learned here is give them actual work and see how they actually work. So that can mean, for example, for engineers, that can mean give them a small project that you pay for, you know, or do pair programming together with them, you know, or maybe combine them, like let them do a small project and then later on do one hour more programming where you ask them to extend this little thing with another little thing, you know. So you actually see how they work. And this is true for engineering, this is true for marketing, this is true for every area. And in my experience, this works best. I know teams that go as far, like Webflow is notorious for this. They do uh, interviews that are more about figuring out if this person would be a good cultural, like people fit, you know? And then afterwards, they literally just pay this person to work with them for a week. And after the week, they give them an offer, which is, in my opinion, crazy. Because Why? who can take off a week and just like work at some other company to see if they want to like work there, you know? But it works for them really well. And um, is that part of the test? Can, will, are you willing to take a week off, or do you think that's just uh, maybe, maybe not? You know, they also offer. Um, and by the way, this is like half a year old information. Maybe they change this, but uh, they also do this thing where you can do two hours in the evening uh, and work with them two hours a day for like literally a month. Um, and in their experience, the people who do this like over a month are almost like a definite hire all the time, you know, and who actually manage to do this for a month. And I, I get it. Like if I do this for a month, I'm committed. I want to join, right? And it works really well for them. This is an extreme case, you know, but you can't do this like lo-fi. Like I strongly believe in remote work on, for, on uh, contract for hire. Give somebody a project, like work with them on something real, you know, and um, agree on a rate that's not like they're extreme amount for freelancing and it's not like as low as like the full-time hiring broken down to a few days you know but somewhere in between so it's fair for both sides if it works put a contract afterwards mm -hmm. and, and as part of this so this kind of um, project-based mm -hmm. hiring 
does this work both for technical teams and uh, non-technical hires, or is it more technical focused? So I primarily hire technically in my life, so I can't properly tell, but I know people who do similar stuff for sales roles and marketing roles, mm-hmm. uh, where they basically give them a typical task that would happen in, in their company, you know, and it seems to work quite well. What are some of the biggest mistakes you've seen um, on the employee side, right? So uh, we've talked a lot about kind of managing, mm-hmm. but if you're that uh, person in the remote team who's sitting, uh, there's no one in your city, right, that work at your company, so you're fully remote 100% of the time, w- what are some of either the mistakes you make or the things that you can do to actually um, make the team work better, right? Because you've, mm-hmm. you've sat in that seat before. Like, mm-hmm. like what were some of the things that you did, um, either good or bad, uh, that you think people should, uh, should should be aware of? There's multiple things. Like one angle is like in the end, you're a manager of one. Like you need to manage yourself, you know? And that goes, that starts with like, understand when you, when and how you're most productive, how you actually as a human being operate. There's people who like to get up at 6 a.m., work for a few hours, go to the gym and then work for a few hours, you know? There's people who like to work in the evening, like understand that part, you know? Um, there is the angle of um, I personally do not recommend working from home. There's a lot of people doing that and doing it very successful. If you work from home, get a dedicated area for that. You know, I personally, what I recommend is rent a small office together with a few friends who also work remote. Um, because for me, at least, this is what I personally prefer because it creates this separation between work and rest. And I also have uh, not as distracting as a co-working space you know but not as isolating as being completely only at home and i especially with like a little bit of an adhd i have a problem of um, setting boundaries so it literally could happen that i will get up in the middle of night and continue working on something or mm-hmm. if my desk as it used to be is like next to my living room i will constantly do that um, so that kind of like management of one uh, on the management of teams it's super important that you you, you kind of like this whole thing about like understanding where processes break down and like trying to fix them is also like in a part a co-owned responsibility of every employee in reality every effective team has people who are very very intentional about their own productivity very intentional about the team productivity and do not expect other people to just fix it you know at least uh, figure out like how it could be improved and uh, do all these kind of things it's there is no magic bullet solution to this because every company as they scale has completely different needs in process, different, completely different needs as a company. Also like different te- people when they work together have completely different needs. So there's no like magic silver bullet. There's more like this general responsibility of this individual people. Skirt, skirt. Want to know who has the best URL? Crypto.com. That's right. Crypto.com. They're a crypto platform with one goal. Mother mass adoption. That's why we're all here. We're trying to get crypto in every wallet. Crypto.com is helping people do that through buying, earning, lending, and card payment. Everything you could want at Crypto.com. Go help your boy out. Tell him Pomp sent you. Download the app or visit Crypto.com. Pomp's got you always. Ever wanted to get into mining and didn't know how? Don't worry. Your boy Pomp's got you. Everybody got some electricity and Wi-Fi. All you got to do is go to coinmine.com, you buy a coin mine. It's like an Xbox or a PlayStation that helps you turn your electricity into Bitcoin. That's right. You purchase it, it shows up at your doorstep, you pull it out of the box, you plug it in, connect to your Wi-Fi, five minutes or less, you're mining Bitcoin. 
All you have to do is control it from the mobile app they provide, and then you receive over-the-air updates that add new coins and new features on a consistent basis. Kind of like how Tesla does over-the-air updates and updates the car software. Just your update in your coin mine. Consumer mining made easy. That's right. Go to coinmine.com, tell them Pomp set you, and thank me later. One more word from our sponsor, BlockFi. Their new interest account allows you to securely deposit your Bitcoin or Ether at BlockFi and receive 6% annual interest paid monthly in cryptocurrency. This rate actually compounds, so you receive a 6.2% APY, which is very attractive given the alternatives. So you can actually take your Bitcoin, you can deposit it with BlockFi, and get paid an interest rate of 6% in return. Go check out BlockFi.com slash POMP. Again, BlockFi.com slash POMP to sign up and start earning interest on your crypto today. And I guess the idea of uh, if me, you, and you know three or four friends all work remote for separate companies coming together uh, into an office space, um, one, there's like kind of the economic argument for it, right? Two is uh, more what I would consider like the psychological argument of just separating work and rest and all that. But three is also uh, th- there's probably a huge benefit because I get to see, you know, how are you yep. interacting with this remote team and kind of what are your best practices, yep. what tools are you using, et cetera? Absolutely. I... I um, friend of mine, he's he's working for a company one and a half days a week, and it works really really well. And I don't know how he's doing it, and I'm trying to learn that. <laughs> you know, yeah. I, I really don't understand it, but it works really well. What, what's he do the rest of the week? I'm trying to figure out. <laughs> he he's, he does a lot of open source, so I think it's that you know. But uh, whenever he comes to that office, he's working roughly one or two days. Um, so yeah, people work very different. It's very important to learn from out there. For sure. What um as you started to uh, to do more investing, mm-hmm. obviously uh, one of the themes that you're really excited about, or maybe the, the major theme, is this remote work. Yes. Uh, there's a lot of people building tools, a lot of build, people building uh, products for this space. Like, what are the themes that you think either one are um, important, or two are uh, where the value is going to be created over the next you know five ten years? So, for context, I. Um recently announced uh, a remote first capital which is basically me plus right 60 people right now 70 people maybe uh, investing together in startups that either um, improve remote work or leverage remote work in a unique way and the interesting thing when it comes to that is a lot of people think instantly about communication tools and I, me too, like in communication tools is obviously an, an important one, but it's almost like the most boring thing you can invest in mm-hmm. when it comes to remote work right now. Why? And Why is it so boring? It's it just as like a lot of other opportunity. We're right now in this moment where we have access to global, highly skilled talent. And um, we're like almost like in a very fortunate time right now. There's enough international talent working globally and not enough companies actually leveraging that so you can create really really new angles to uh, multiple problems right now and this is nothing that's crazy future out there discussion right now nowadays if you go to a hospital and you do an x-ray there's a high chance that this x-ray won't be looked at at the office at the at the at the hospital it will be looked at like somewhere else by some people who specialize on that you know and that's normal by now and there's i i strongly believe that remote work is like we're thinking of this tech angle you know there's multiple other angles like um larger 
classical enterprises bringing their operations remote, governments bringing their administrations uh, and operations remote. What what currently is happening is everything is polarizing towards single few hubs worldwide. So to the point that these single hubs are more important than the rest of the country. Like uh, I know a lot of people who move to New York, but don't think of moving to the USA or like move to San Francisco and don't or like or move to Bali and so on and so on like it, to the point that it, like this individual hub becomes more important than the rest of the area which leaves the question is like what happens to all the other regions what happens to all the small towns small villages and all these kind of areas everywhere and remote work is an, in, an interesting answer to that and there's like the whole concept about like local remote so you have an uh, so much a hub in a small town where they do like for example it's like a traditionally like an oil hub and they bring their operations administrations to the region around so that not everybody has to commute to a one hour or something to the main office but can work most of the time from home and so but i i, I strongly see like an, uh, a strong angle here and i believe this for example geo arbitrage which we usually associate with outsourcing but just by the fact that there is better and different talent worldwide um, I believe there will be a lot of interesting unique things coming up another thing is like flexibility so uh, you recently got a kid you have um, for example you are currently studying or you, you have a disability and you need like to adjust your work life to that and I think remote work will become the, the, the default angle to that I recently invested in a company that um, offers 10 hours a week uh, work placements, basically internships, fully remote in marketing. And the idea is that you as a student need practical experience as early as possible. Um, the other angle here is like if credentials globally break down, if you don't know how to evaluate somebody from Nigeria or from somebody from uh, Latin America or even from the rest of the USA, if they don't didn't go to Stanford, you know, uh, how do you actually evaluate them? I, uh, one company invested in is doing uh, job applications for pull requests. So as an engineer, you literally get access to the backlog of a company in a code sandbox environment, and you can do small tasks focusing and showing actually, hey, I'm a useful contribut contributor. And at that point, the company knows nothing about you. They don't know your, your skin, your face, your gender, nor your, your background, your nothing. They only have seen your code. And there's a multiple angles to that. Uh, other big aspect here, I think there's a billion dollar company easily built if not multiple and the whole concept around uh, global payroll and global benefits and i think that's kind of like the stripe opportunity of our generation when stripe came um, and i ran an e-commerce company at that point um, it kind of came into a market where you either were working with local shitty providers and multiple of them in a very complex painful process um, or you worked with some few suppliers that are uh, internationally and global that are just hard to work with as a startup. And there was almost nothing in between properly. And then Stripe came and made it one click and like focused on the experience, convenience, all this kind of stuff, and made it really e like simplified or reduced that whole complexity for you as a user. And I believe in payroll benefits, there is a billion dollar company easily in that area. The, and there's multiple angles to that. There is this whole angle in remote work. If, if I can, um, for example, like, let's not think about like engineering, but let's think of um, customer care. So, um, uh, uh, for example, 
I want to onboard in a team and I have a few tools to use and I have like my cockpit. I almost like download this thing and I have all my SaaS tools in there. And this is like a company also recently invested in, but they're doing that. But like the bigger angle here could be on the long run. What if in the morning I get up and I have like five or eight different companies I technically work from, work for, and I just pick the tasks that currently fit into my day and do those. And uh, it becomes almost like a fluid marketplace. And there's like a lot of decentralized concept in crypto around this. This is like a huge angle to me personally as well. And and so on and so on. I can talk about forever for this. Let's what else? What else? Yeah. Depends. I know you got a bunch of ideas. Yeah, dude, I, I, I have literally a, a huge list of companies I actually uh, I want to invest in. And if I don't find them, then I will build them on my own, it feels like. Um, the biggest... I personally believe also like one of the biggest opportunities we have right now is um, in private equity going all remote. Um, and I say this with knowing almost next to nothing about private equity. So mm. please correct me at any point. Yeah. And, and just to clarify here, because I know that uh, this is something we want to spend a lot of time on. Private yeah. equity in this sense is not like private investing, meaning venture capital as the company is being built. This is much more um, taking a company that already exists and trying to scale it, grow yes. it. Um, I come in, I buy your company, yes. and then here we go. Right. Yes. Okay. All right. Go ahead. Um, so we right now have a wave, and I, I, I highly recommend somebody, some listeners here, please do that. Let me know. I want to, if there's a way I can invest in a private equity, I don't know if I legally can do that, but like I want to do that. Um, so there is this, uh, right now, this phase where we have VCs investing in a lot of companies that will be winners of a niche, but not really VC cases, right? So at some point you have like, you had millions of fundraising before you build up a structure that's very costly, very inefficient, you know, you, because you scaled really aggressively, you hired a lot of very expensive people in tech hubs and so on and so on. And then you hit like a ceiling and you kind of like, okay, to actually break through, we either need to completely pivot, we can raise for that, or we need to just accept that and just like continuously do that. But like our cost structure doesn't allow that. And I believe there will be a lot of uh, PE companies focusing on that. High, buying, for example, SaaS companies, like there's kind, Tiny Capital doing that very successfully. There's Think3 doing that very successfully, like buying SaaS companies either in a certain area or like in general, and then offering the team to either stay or not, their choice, but more importantly, replace people through all remote hires. And I'm not thinking of like cheap outsourcing. I'm thinking more like to run an uh, a well-defined smaller startup you don't need 100 people you know you might only need a handful of people but those need to be the best possible people you can get for that company and so for example if it's a hosting company you know you might want to get like a few ridiculously good sys admins where you know that you know you can hire one person over there one person over there and it's like much easier if you do that on a global scale you know and you hire the best possible people for i would say global rates than hire some random people that just happen to be in the same town and charge ridiculous amounts and i strongly believe that the future of this kind of private equity at least is going completely or remote there's already now companies like uh, think3 who have uh, it's run by the folks who also do crossover and they have around 3000 to 4000 people on the management and the it's vision yeah, fuck, yeah it's a lot and all remote and the vision of the founder there is to at some point hire buy a company every day um because you have infinite supply of ridiculously talented people who want to work on this kind of projects right and that will be a big one another big space i personally see will help governments go remote uh especially around administration and so on and so on 
and how do you do that in a way that's actually secure for a company uh, for a government and how can you do that in a way that they companies or uh, corporations that are notoriously bad with trust and processes, how can you help them to basically learn to trust in this angle here? Yeah. Let's go back to the private equity thing yeah, for a sure. second, because to me that that's a really interesting idea. Basically, I take a company who uh, either one is not optimized for rem- remote work, but trying mm-hmm. or two, uh, they don't, they haven't even tried yet. Mm-hmm. And uh, you have two aspects, right? So if I buy your company and then I put it into this model, one, I can probably drastically reduce cost, mm-hmm. right? By, hey, rather than pay that engineer in San Francisco, I could pay an engineer from another part of the world. They're getting uh, a great uh, salary given uh, kind of the cost of living, um, but then two, also you're dropping costs. So there's kind of like what I would consider more of the um, mercenary type approach to private equity where mm-hmm. you're stripping out cost. Um, but then there's also another part of it, which is growing, mm-hmm. right? If all of a sudden I say, look, I actually not going to get rid of any of the employees. I want to keep everyone I currently have. Mm-hmm. But moving forward, as we hire more and more people, I want more resources and I'm going to do it on a more cost-effective basis, mm-hmm. right? And so it's less about stripping costs at that point and it's more about um, turning a company from a centralized corporation to this remote work. Do you think that this is um, more about the capital and courage to do it? Or do you think that the person or group who does this is going to be um, somebody who's really, really familiar with the processes and the experiences of um, building remote teams? So both. Both, Um, The the, the angle here is if you have, like, so first of all, you can buy any company anywhere. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter where they are. Most likely you would focus on certain time zones like the classic one would be like West Coast to Eastern Europe, you know, and like Africa, Latin America included. You um, So you hire them anywhere and you might have people in your company who are just like super experienced already doing, for example, fixing the accounting, fixing whatever typical problems you have at that stage, fixing customer care setup and all this kind of stuff. And they come in and help setting that up properly. And this is what they enjoy. They kind of like enjoy this troubleshooting period, you know, and we think a lot about like salary and like costs and it's true like uh you can hire cheaper but that's more because san francisco and new york is disproportionately expensive in my opinion uh but it's not like cheap outsourcing as many people think of it uh experienced talent that's highly qualified and is able to work online you know and and it's somebody that you can actually easily find online will be somebody who has multiple offers and there is a market for that you know, and they will expect international salaries. They don't care what the local salary in Bulgaria or Nigeria or whatever for a senior engineer would be. You know, they expect an international salary. So it's sometimes surprisingly expensive. And I know people who pay for San Fran- uh, Eastern European sysops uh, people four hundred k, five hundred k. You know, mm-hmm. and because there's that global expectation now. Yeah, yeah. And these are people who are some of the best. And if you are if you're acquiring these kind of companies, you might want to have some of the best people joining you. It's almost like a skill-based income uh, or salary versus a geography-based. Yes. Uh, yes and no. So yes, in general, yes. Um, I personally am always like getting a little bit of like hate on Twitter for this, but I don't believe in the fact that everybody should earn the same salary worldwide. Okay, why? Um, on the long run, maybe. You know, But uh, right now... I strongly believe in decentralized uh, solutions and the market is a decentralized solution. If there is a certain market rate for a certain task, skill, uh, person, that's the market rate. And that being said, I strongly believe that senior engineers globally are expecting global salaries. So it will be, let's say, 60 to 160K 
right? And that's an expectation they will have as a senior engineer. But that's nowhere in comparison to typical San Francisco salaries, for example. And there's very, very few teams that do uh, salaries on the same scale that actually hire in ridiculous spaces like like San Francisco, but also in super low-priced areas like um, Nicaragua or uh, Nigeria or anywhere else, you know, they because it's really hard to keep this internal balance. Like it's hard to keep an internal balance. If you do, for example, same salary, you have somebody in a in an expensive country who can't just like move tomorrow. You know, he can't just like tell his family that he's moving somewhere else cheaper or she's moving somewhere cheaper. Uh, who works for a okay living and somebody else who gets the same salary who buys a flat every year in cash. You know, so you, what you actually want to get to is to the point that people of comparable experience and talent have a comparable lifestyle, which is should be ideally off the chart amazing if they're amazing talent you know but i do not believe a flat rate salary in a company can achieve that that easily unless you really really aggressively either just believe that and don't hire many people that's great or if you limit where you actually hire and you only hire in the us and canada for example and some western europe countries for sure um a lot of teams in crypto mm-hmm. are uh, pretty decentralized and, and yeah, of course work based uh just given the nature of uh what they're building the ethos yeah. of the industry etc are there any companies uh in crypto or not that um you kind of say look you know from what you see from the outside uh you think they're doing a great job uh and kind of serve as role models um mm-hmm. for uh, for folks listening to this that, that maybe want to uh kind of look at how somebody else is doing this so in in, in like more the meta level here um what we had like right now companies like google and facebook are almost like remote team in denial they, if you if you happen to work in Google, it's very likely that you don't even seeing the people you work with regularly outside of a video conference room, right? And you may be on the same campus. Yeah, exactly, because it's like no point like going there. It's just too much effort, right? So you actually happen to always see them in a the video chat anyway. It's almost like remote team in denial. And any company above, I would say, 800 people is like basically set up like a remote first team usually, unless they manage some magic I don't know about. Um, so we have a lot of the learnings uh, or the patterns that work in remote teams really well uh, in these kind of companies. And I also strongly believe that uh, the next generation of Googles will actually take a lot of the learnings that come from decentralized organizations, uh, DAOs and, and you name it, and take those learnings. Because if you have a company with several thousand people, it's almost like it's internal market of decisions and it's an internal market of talent. And right now we don't reflect that. We have like very rigid systems. And I strongly believe that there will be multiple crypto companies that manage to have learnings here where they not what they build, but how they build it will actually be the more interesting product for other companies to pick up. Mm-hmm. And, and do you feel like that's only applicable to the crypto companies or do you think that that's applicable outside of crypto? What exactly do you mean? Uh, so like those learnings, you, you said mm-hmm. specifically crypto companies will be built that way. Um, do you think that non-crypto no, definitely, companies? This will be, like I, I think some of the biggest takeaways, similar we had to some of the biggest takeaways from open source were really useful for companies that don't work open source. The same way here, how a lot of these decentralized organizations actually work will be in some cases more important than actually what they worked on. And like 
companies like the next generation of Googles will actually take those patterns and like, apply them. They will have internal systems for decision, like decentralized systems for decision making, decentralized systems for identity or decentralized systems for talent markets and all this kind of stuff. Although the company itself isn't considered themselves like to work on any decentralized product. Mm-hmm. What's your take in terms of uh, if I'm a team and I want to find somebody who wants to work remote, mm-hmm. what are the best practices there? Is this, uh, let me go and tweet a bunch on Twitter and hope somebody sees it. Is, is there things at AngelList that I should be using? Are there other tools? How do I find that talent or vice versa? If I'm the talent, how do I find the companies that are looking to hire remote? Mm-hmm. So um, from the company POV, um, it depends on the stage you are, right? Okay. So early stage, the best thing you can do is leverage your own network. The good thing is if you're working remote, you don't limit to your network. It just happens to be in the same town, right? So hire the people that you trust or people you trust, they trust. Uh, that's the number one advice for any startup. And I personally believe there's nothing magic or unique to remote work. It's just like right now, it's a kind of tipping point moment for us, you know, but that's true in any case for startups. Um, afterwards, what I highly recommend is active re- reach out. So use sourcing tools like on AngelList, we have a source or a list or on LinkedIn, there's like LinkedIn recruit and there's multiple other tools where you actively can search for specific kinds of profiles, you know, and intentionally approach those people uh, with a very consi- uh, concise pitch. Why and what, what, why are you doing what you're doing and what would they be doing? You know, mm-hmm. um, I have very good experience of this. And the other one that is completely under leveraged, in my opinion, is employer branding. It's when you say like tweet a bunch, right? This kind of stuff like tweeting, blogging, or just being present in your community, you know, is one of the least leveraged hiring tools that a lot of companies do. If you have a strong brand and you have uh, the setup that people can technically work remote from you, you would have more inbound than you can manage. Because right now there's an arbitrage opportunity. Right now there's more people wanting to work remote than there is companies offering quality remote jobs. So if you can actually leverage this moment right now, you will have an unfair advantage. And like startups are only about unfair advantage. Right now on AngelList, if you are opening a job listing and you open it up to remote, you will have 4x the applicants. If, If you have a good brand, you will have multiple times of that. And you might have it even without posting it on any job board. I know teams that are... 40 people of companies that you have never heard of who have several hundred applicants for each job they open and they usually take down jobs even without having found anybody just to manage the inbound. So you basically open up the job for like one week and then close it again because we have enough applicants. If you don't find it in this pool of 400, it's us, not them, right? Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, that's my personal advice here. Got it. What are the dangers of a remote work, right? So everything we're talking about is kind of the positive impact mm-hmm. and, and uh, uh, the benefits, but are there any dangers that you foresee or things that people should uh, should watch out as kind of like potholes in the road? Um, so personally, I think you need to leverage up, level up as a manager a lot. And that's the legwork that a lot of teams don't want to do or can do. And it's kind of like personal limitations where you see yourself and all this kind of stuff. You need to level up as a manager. You need to be more aware about how you work with people, how you want to work with people, how you do processes and all this kind of stuff. That's the biggest mistake that I constantly see. On a more meta level, like what I believe in future might be an interesting problem. And that's not a, I have nobody heard this yet, but I, I'm, this is kind of like the, the boring dystopia I'm waiting for is fraud in remote work. So you actually hire somebody and that person turns out not to be the person that you, like, that you hired. 
you know it's actually this person outsources to somebody else you know or I, I'm, wa I'm literally waiting for some of my portfolio companies to tell me that they had a employee who literally deep faked video or something like that I'm, I'm just waiting for that I have I know companies where like one friend of mine he has a team of like 150 people and there's one employee who's one of his earliest who nobody in the team knows how this person looks like or sounds like they've never spoken to like a super shy person doesn't want that you know and uh, there's many reasons most likely for that but otherwise super happy and engaged in the team but they've never talked to that person so it, they see it kind of like from their point of view as an in being as inclusive as they can and i'm almost like what if this person is literally not a person but a group of people who share a salary you know like this is the kind of dystopian future i'm waiting for and hoping for in a, in a weird way but for the moment we are right now um become better managers yeah it's a really interesting way to look at it in terms of manager here uh, going back to what you said earlier about managing processes and leading mm -hmm. people it's by becoming better process driven and, and documentation and and uh, really learning how to unblock those that uh, you work with uh, you become that better manager right but it's almost like the the macro effort is hey you've got to be a better manager the micro effort though yeah. is very action oriented things that um look it's you know, kind of tedious, hard work, but if you do it correctly, it can be incredibly uh, empowering for a team. There, exactly. It's almost, uh, as a remote team, you're forced to do that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And there's so many angles to this. There is, what a lot of team do wrong is the whole opinion versus decisions. It's not clear who actually makes a decision here and everybody adds opinions. And it's a lot of people confuse their own opinion with like, that's actually a decision. The classic one is you have like one co-founder who is technically not part of that team, but like adds their opinion, is, is pissed off that people don't follow that. So opinion versus decisions uh, or in general, like decision layering, like who makes what kind of decisions. A very common problem is that uh, inexperienced startup founders do drive-by management where they focus on problems that are fun to solve because they're easy and small instead of focusing the annoying problems that they are supposed to do but don't like because they start the startup because they like programming and whatever and now they have to do fundraising and like fixing whatever board problem you know so instead they jump into a team and do like drive-by management where they give like a lot of opinions and decisions throw them in and then everybody's confused and when the first question is asked the, the founder is already gone you know that, that's a very common anti-pattern I see, uh, sometimes even unintentional, just by the fact that the voice of a founder is, has a lot of weight. And especially across multiple cultures, that can be a huge problem. So what a lot of remote teams actually do, for example, here is they add uh, hashtags where they say um, FYI or suggestion or recommendation or plea or request. And they have an internal wiki page where it literally says what each of them mean. So if I say this, I don't expect you to do whatever. But if I say that, I expect you to do what this one mm -hmm. thing. Yeah, and, and some of this, the nuance is almost lost, right? When uh, when you're not together every single day, and so having that clear um, communication kind of strategy, almost right, and, and, and process mm -hmm. uh, clears up a lot of that. What what happens uh, when that breaks down, though? Right, like in terms of like conflict resolution, how, uh, how have you seen teams um, who where maybe the best solution would be let's sit down face to face mm -hmm. um, and have a conversation? You can't do that because you're geographically limited. How do those teams uh, do conflict resolution? I, w I wish I would have like a simple answer to that I think that's literally the hardest challenge that you have as a manager it's kind of like everything is easy but people you know and as soon as you have multiple people you have like NXN problems here um, the things that I s saw that work is 
usually all people in your team come with the right intentions and they just so it's much more like it's kind of like person plus context is output right and usually it's more a context problem that people face and it's more the, the fact that something isn't clear it's not clear who makes a decision it's not clear how you actually want people to make decisions where you prioritize and all this kind of stuff so in a lot of cases it's actually the fault of the manager above and not the actual that people don't like each other the good thing in remote teams if you don't like the other person that much you don't have that much context area if you don't want to right so in, in most cases it's much more about fixing that context how you make decisions and like what kind of decisions are made um, and if all of that breaks down like I still recommend like fly people together there's mm -hmm. like a few problems that can't be fixed if people meet each other and just actually understand how they are different And very often it comes down to cultural differences. Like I'm Germanic. I give feedback as direct as you can imagine, you know, which in California is considered borderline autistic, you know. So you need to learn the balance in between sometimes. For sure. And, and as part of this conflict resolution is mm -hmm. um, you – really only have a uh, fairly professional relationship in if uh, you take remote work very literally, right? So you and I, the only times we talk is preset meetings mm -hmm. and maybe we communicate over Slack uh, and then we might have an asynchronous meeting or two through like a Google Doc, let's say, right? Mm -hmm. So that's the only way that you and I as two members of a remote team interact. You lose a lot of the kind of humanity of those that you work with, right? Or that, that, that personal relationship, if that's all you do. The way that that's solved, I think, in terms of uh, a traditional company is um, you run into each other in the hallway or in the in the company kitchen. Uh, you can go get drinks after work. You know, the, there's kind of uh, offsite events. Like, there's all these things that can happen, whether intentionally or not, that um, provide more of the the humanity side of that personal relationship. What have you seen teams do there, uh, even if they can't get together in person? Like, what are some of the things that they can do to, to just drive deeper personal relationships and, and kind of build team, if you will? Mm -hmm. So first I will say something about the general premise here. Okay. Um, I strongly believe that you can be very, very lonely and very, very isolated in a very full office. Oh, for sure. And you can Completely. be very uh, unhappy in, like you can have a very productive work experience and a horrible human experience, although you sit next to everybody. And I, I know people who are literally lonely, although they sit like in a, in a very full office. And that is not like, so this is not necessarily like something to do with remote work. It's much more about how the company of company culture is set up. Okay, that's, I, very, that's a very fair point. Good point. And I also see like a lot of people were in a remote team were, the people actually have very, very strong personal relationships to each other, you know, but not just because they sit next to each other, but because they intentionally want to have that. So it's kind of like, come see, come see. The um, angle here, what people are trying to do here to, to have like a little bit more like a human angle, there, there is multiple things that people are trying and I don't have a perfect answer for this. There is the classic one is like donut where you just, get people together for like a video chat that's nothing to do with work there's other teams that try to do like once a week to have a discussion that's never nothing you know and just like get together you know um, there's other teams that intentionally do offsites uh, once a quarter to have this kind of interaction uh, there is teams that buy everybody in the team a nintendo switch and have like this slack bot that announces when somebody's playing so that somebody else can join as well People are experimenting with this a lot right now. Um, I don't think that there's yet a magic bullet, but I also believe that there is not really a magic bullet in offices. Like the, a lot of the things that we do, we kind of cargo culted in, like like office, um, I don't know, 
in Halloween everybody comes dressed you know and like everybody has like a funny whatever and that's terrifying to me personally for example as a Germanic person you know so I think we're still learning here um, and uh, also like in remote teams like people are still learning this yeah makes sense uh, what's your thoughts on uh, Bitcoin and crypto <laughs> I actually looked up when I bought my first Bitcoin before I came here. Okay. Uh, I, let's let's say it like this. I instantly received afterwards an email by Coinbase that they bumped up my uh, daily allowance to buy Bitcoin, I think like to f 60 BTC per day or something like that. Um, I think the first Bitcoin I bought at like $70 and the next... 70. I think so, yeah. And the next one at like around 300-ish, I think. Okay. Um, Horrible, horrible decisions. Yeah. <laughs> so I remember back then I was living in Berlin and a friend of mine uh, basically pushed me to, to buy Bitcoin. And I was like, yeah, cool, I'd do that. But I literally don't have the money to buy food, you know. And so maybe food is more important and I only buy like a little bit of Bitcoin. Looking back, I'm quite fat nowadays. You know, I could have just like bought less food and bought, bought more Bitcoin back then. Um, personally... Like I have a, a long take on, on crypto because obviously like uh, we all work in this industry in some angle. But um, I'm personally s still super bullish on multiple decentralized solutions. And I still believe there's like a lot to come and we are almost like generation zero yet. Mm. And we there was like a disproportional media hype around it. And I th I, what I personally like now is that we are in a phase where people are almost like shut up and get back to work. And I honestly believe right now is kind of like generation one almost. Like we're getting not to the point where a lot of more interesting companies are popping up. Yeah. It, it almost feels like 20 years from now we'll look back and people will be like, you you, you guys are doing what? Right. And, yeah, yeah. and the example that uh, that I, I actually recently wrote about this, um, I went back and I screenshot a bunch of the early uh, consumer web uh, websites, you know, uh, Netscape, Amazon, etc., uh, and uh, even things like you know URLs compared to IP addresses, yeah. right? Uh, and today, if you look at like digital wallets with these you know random string of letters and numbers, but eventually that can get solved with something that's more um, you know human readable, if you will. I honestly still believe that it's offensive that I have a telephone number. <laughs> Why? I had. I mean, this is it obvious? Like, why do I have a telephone number? Like, there's millions of solutions for that nowadays, and I have a freaking telephone number. Mm -hmm. This is like having an IP address for my website. This is bizarre. And more importantly, which is complete, it breaks completely down because so many apps actually rely on you having a telephone number, and when you switch them regularly, as international people tend to do, you pretty much are screwed unless you're losing Google Voice or something. Mm -hmm. uh, so, yeah, we, we will look back at the current generation almost like as we look back to the times f before the first dot-com, uh, mm -hmm. even before the first dot-com uh, uh, crash, I think. For sure. And then uh, outside of Bitcoin, any thoughts there or, or mainly your focus is on Bitcoin and the decentralized uh, companies? So for me, the three things I'm personally super bullish on, and, and I'm not like you, the experts, and everybody listening to this is an expert. I'm, I'm a bystanding person that was given a microphone um, my personal opinion here is um, Bitcoin because of the brand and the public recognition um, multiple other coins because of uh, privacy drugs and everything else um, and I am personally super bullish on uh, markets of markets 
So basically saying there will be always uh, commodity resources that will have providers with spare capacities uh, that will sell on their own marketplace. And that an easy example, like an easy example to frame this would be, for example, storage is like the classical one, right? So you have all these providers uh, who have their own storage capacity and selling this on their own marketplace. And there will be spare capacity that they will sell on decentralized uh, markets of markets. So basically a marketplace where, or like a market where intentionally it's set up that nobody can actually screw the system Mm -hmm. uh, and nobody can skew the system once they get like critical amount. And there is solutions nowadays in in crypto trying to do that, like Filecoin and so on, like there will be solutions otherwise in the future. And that's where I'm personally most bullish on because this is nothing where you have the consumer-facing angle. Like the problem with consumer-facing angle is always you will have somebody f- nailing down doing uh, brand and doing uh, marketing and UX and UI, and that person can at some point skew the market again. Yeah. I think you're right in terms of, uh, again, it goes back to process, right? Process mm-hmm. inside the c- company can yeah. set you up for success or set you up for failure. Uh, same thing with these marketplaces, decentralized corporations, et cetera. Is it's almost like they'll preset the rules, and if they're thoughtful about how they do that, um, they can prevent a lot of the bad stuff from happening that um, that I think people are worried about right now. Mm-hmm. Right? It's it's. I, I, I strongly believe that uh, sociology, game theory, system theory, uh we we not yet include enough of this in how we think about business. For sure. Um, before we wrap up, I huh? always ask us uh, some rapid fire questions. Okay. What uh, what do you think is the most important company in crypto? In crypto, yeah, I I would like to ask you this and <laughs> then invest actually. Uh, Bitcoin <laughs> would be my answer. Yeah, like if you consider Bitcoin a company, yeah, yeah. definitely. Uh, uh, even even for anything, just for uh, the brand recognition. Yeah, because my mother knows Bitcoin. For sure. And that's worth something. You want to hear a wild story about moms and Bitcoin? Okay. So my, uh, my my mom knows that, you know, I'm into Bitcoin, doesn't yeah. really kind of fully understand it, whatever. And uh, the other day, Bitcoin crashed uh, two days in a row, almost 10% both days. So, yeah. so it drew down pretty uh, aggressively. And I got a message on the second day from my mother that said, uh, I want to buy some Bitcoin. How do I do that? And so I immediately called her and just said, what, what are you doing? What, 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 what are you talking about? And she said, uh, well, I figure it's on sale. Nice. And I literally was like, she may be smarter than like 90% of crypto, you know, Twitter or something, right? Or Bitcoin Twitter. Uh, and, and I kept talking to her about it. And she goes, well, like, she's like, everyone is saying how the price is going down. Mm-hmm. She goes, when you buy clothes, when the price goes down, then you want to buy them. And I just sat there and I, and I literally was amazed. She knows nothing about investing, you know, in terms of the, the kind of traditional investing mm-hmm. or anything, but it was just this mentality of, uh, it's almost like the, the ignorance that she had to, uh, the price movements and, and all this stuff was the drawdown was so severe mm-hmm. that it kind of made the more mainstream news, which is the things that she would look at. And when that happened, she thought like, oh, I should buy one now while they're cheap. Mm-hmm. Um, and it reminded me that, uh, was it in 2017 at the uh, at the top of the market, mm-hmm. she also asked me one uh, if I'd give her one for Christmas. <laughs> so there's only two times my mother and I have ever talked about Bitcoin. And one was at the uh, the top of the market in 2017 for Christmas. And the second time was after like a 20% drawdown. <laughs> You're trying to get out of this question, but did you give it? Uh, I did not give her a Bitcoin. No, what are I, you giving your mother this year for Christmas? Uh, I haven't decided yet. But it's but, not uh, going to be a Bitcoin. It is not going to be a Bitcoin. Okay. And, and the thought process Chicken. is, uh, no, it, it's more of um, she... Uh, 
it's self-preservation because she yeah. would call me every day because she would watch the price right and then call me and say what's going on and so if if i don't give her one then i'm not the person that she's going to call if she has a bitcoin so if she buys it on her own then uh then she'll only have herself to question i, I cannot watch the price every day like like how does she do that like your mother has like a high well, well she doesn't today right? okay fair enough. Oh, so you mean, like, but if she look. had one yeah yeah, 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 yeah okay yeah. please yeah. please don't like yeah, yeah the last thing you want is your mother to be stressed uh yeah well stress <laughs> would stress would not be the the biggest concern the biggest concern would be she would keep calling me asking me questions um What, what's the most important book you've ever read? The most important book? Yeah. There's a lot of them. I uh, figure. I know Jesus. you read a lot. So you got to pick one or two of them. Yeah, yeah. So first of all, if people try to get into reading, uh, one thing I would highly recommend is don't read all these business BS books. There's so many books that tell you about something, whatever, and it's, it's always like a hype book of the day. Usually, it's very, very hard to use those to get into reading. What I highly recommend is pick something that you're passionate about. And mm -hmm. that's basically almost like a, I don't know, cheap. That's interesting. Yeah, but like almost like a, how do you call like a habit you're ashamed of? You know, like something like where you're kind of like dirty secret kind of, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, so I read a ton of sci-fi. Okay. And it can be from horrible military sci-fi that's uh, written by somebody who is obviously doesn't like young people, mm -hmm. you know, uh, up to completely bizarre sci-fi about complex interstellar systems that are doing whatever crazy stuff that's hard to articulate up to um, multidimensional sci-fi, like, like just like cyberpunk, whatever, you know, like you name it. Mm -hmm. Um, space operas and so on and so on like I love sci-fi this is what I read most um, if I would recommend though books that I think everybody should read and the most influential book for me was uh, How to Win Friends and Influence People mm -hmm. and I, I it's almost like to the point that I it's almost like it should be given to people like kind of like you, you have a driving license test but to become a human and it's almost like you should read that to get like your license to be allowed to interact with other people and It almost felt back to me when I first time read it. I was like, oh, shit, I'm a horrible person. And I'm a, like, I also realized how horrible I was as a, f a first time founder, like how much of my own problems I just put on other people and like how horribly interacted with people. So that's a book I almost recommend everybody to read. Mm -hmm. And uh, a part of that, I, I, I can't talk about forever about this. Like if you if you want our interesting takes on politics right now, I. The Dictator's Handbook is a, is a, gives you like an interesting angle to think of politics in a game theory POV. Uh, the idea is kind of like, why do politics happen the way they happen? And although it's like, we think it's wrong, you know, and we think these people are doing something bad and whatever, because it works in their game. Mm -hmm. And highly recommend that one. Um, I have a ton of books like that. Like, All right, one uh, more. Uh, Narcoeconomics. Uh, how drug cartels operate. And that's like all of them intentionally are books that are fun to read. None mm -hmm. of them is like a drag to read. You know, you can read like there's millions of books that like like uh, uh, high growth performance or uh, why we sleep and all these kind of books like books important to read, you know, yep. but these are books that are you can read them for fun and you don't need to learn anything and they will be still like good good for you to read and like amazing to read. Narcoeconomics is one where it explains how narco, uh, narco um, cartels basically operate and how the actual economics behind it operate and how little Uh, the like or, or how counterintuitive the effects are of people of things that we do to stop it and how little it actually matters so for example if you burn down most of the uh, 
for example, in cocaine, the coca leaf fields, which is like very common practice in Venezuela or, or Colombia and so on and so on, um, it has almost no effect on the price because it doesn't matter. What happens is that just more farmers are forced to do it, you know, uh, before it was, and so on and so on. Or if you, if you block them at the border, it doesn't matter for the price. The price almost doesn't change for these kind of stuff because the whole, how the economics are set up to the point that it's uh, something like cocaine, if it would be legal, would be something that I think is comparable to uh, a premium coffee in price, something like that, you know, mm-hmm. um, so it's it's ridiculous like how it's almost like the more you destroy it probably the price goes up obviously right. yeah. Yeah, and yeah, like yeah. How, how much I mean, the more uh, hurdles you throw in it like it goes very well into the uh, uh, system theoretic uh, mm-hmm. concepts behind it and what's happening around that so like that's one I highly recommend and there's like multiple more if you want to like talk sci-fi I can't talk forever aliens speaking of sci-fi yeah. believer or non-believer there's nothing to believe what do you mean it's statistically impossible that there is no other life out there and it's almost like a given fact that we already know in, like even in i think yeah whatever it's like on a, on a life in general like organic life in general is almost like a given fact that this exists intelligent life is statistically impossible that it doesn't exist given the scale on the universe like i think we are human are just we cannot comprehend how big the universe actually is mm-hmm. and we cannot com- like it's for us to just our brain doesn't work on that scale. Mm-hmm. Our brain doesn't work uh, the same as we cannot handle exponential scale uh, factors and all this kind of stuff. We cannot comprehend how big the universe it is. So there is no question if there's intelligent life out there or not. You know, yeah. it, it feels to me like um, I always go to the ocean first, right? So mm-hmm. we can't comprehend how vast and deep the ocean is, let alone space, yeah. right? Like the ocean is nothing compared to just the our solar system let alone the you know the galaxies etc and most humans can't wrap their head around the ocean mm-hmm. and so it's like on such a minute scale the ocean well of course they can't think of space yeah right all they think about is like what's the next planet next to us right they think of this kind of like, that's our next door neighbor how come we can't get there a, a fascinating thing here is um humans don't think of distance as um like a unit of distance they think of it as a unit of time so for example uh, america used to be far away uh the, the wild west used to be far away and the more we had like it was becoming more and more normal we had different ships we had railroads and so on and so on it becomes like more accessible from like months and years to get to the other side to days and to hours like later on to hours the same is true in space um right now it's for us incomprehensible to to it used to be incomprehensible to go to the Mars. Nowadays, it's becoming like an achievable thing. With, uh, different systems in future, either different rocket systems or different other setups like like skyhooks and so on and so on, you name it, uh, it will be shorter and shorter time. And um, to the point that we think of distance as time. The problem we have, though, still is even if all of the currently foreseeable futures in technology work, it's still the next solar system is still uncomprehendable far away oh yeah for sure and so on and so on this is a forever discussion now well uh the the thing i'll say is um in the united states if you ask somebody how far away is it Mm -hmm. right so let's say i said to you you know how far away is uh, another part of uh manhattan Mm -hmm. americans would answer in time yeah right in all humans do yeah well well and the only places where uh you know my girl our fiance now is uh, from bulgaria right and uh uh much closer to where you're from. Mm-hmm. Um, there's still a lot of people who answer in kilometers. 
right? And so it's very funny because to Because they assume a certain transportation by default. Yes. yes. And so it's in the US, you can't do that, mm-hmm. right? Because you don't know, you know, Manhattan alone. So we could take a cab or they could take the subway or they could walk, et cetera. Mm-hmm. In other parts of the world, you you have to assume, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's just interesting, even here on Earth, when you ask people a simple question like, how far is that place? Mm-hmm. You get different types of answers, like, like the structure they use is different, uh, which obviously changes when you start getting into space and Mars, et cetera. I think the best example for this is LA. LA is almost like this thing where space and time don't work the same way as everywhere else. Something is really close on a map and you need to get there forever in a car because the traffic jam is so bad. Mm -hmm. I know, uh, to get back to the original topic for a second, like I know remote teams that only hire in LA, but they're fully remote. (laughs) Like small teams though, you know? But it's, I know actually four of them and all of them like 10 or less people and they consider themselves a fully remote team, but everybody's in LA. Mm-hmm. because it's just too much pain to actually go to the same area. It's lost time, yeah, exactly. right? And this is kind of the, the promise of autonomous vehicles, et cetera, is yeah. that can we free up that creative time, et cetera. Um, to wrap up, I always let somebody ask me a question. What one question do you have for me? I, would, I wanted to ask you, when are you going to propose? But <laughs> I failed by like one week, I thought two weeks now. Um, what is the craziest thing that you think you can get through at your wedding with your wife that you can actually pull off that she's okay with that still will potentially blow everybody's mind because i know that you have like 25 ideas and like I do. four of them are illegal five of them are like borderline dangerous and like the rest is like forbidden by your wife a future wife so so, so she made the mistake uh and told me that one of the bulgarian traditions uh at some weddings um and there's this whole gypsy non-gypsy you know all this stuff in, in uh, bulgaria um, but one of the traditions is that they have a live dancing bear. Mm-hmm. Balkan everywhere. And, and so for me, um, I don't know if I can pull it off in the U.S., but at some point in the celebrations, whether it's actually at the wedding, after the wedding, a celebration in Bulgaria, etc., I think I can get a bear there. And if I can get a bear, then uh, I feel like that anchors you on uh, – if you have a live dancing bear at, at an event, uh, there's a whole bunch of other things you can do that don't look as ridiculous as having a bear. And so that's probably the one that I'm focused on at the moment because uh, you know how could uh, a, a beautiful woman from Bulgaria turn down a Bulgarian tradition? <laughs> I, I honestly don't think it's that hard to get a bear in Eastern Europe for that kind of stuff. What you need to make sure is like a humane treatment and all this kind of stuff. I think that's going to be harder. Uh, I have been to Bulgarian weddings and now you're choking. Uh, and I think there will be like a few listeners from the Balkans here, like a lot of them, I guess. Balkan weddings are next level, you know? And I think they're like, I think Indian weddings are crazy, but Balkan weddings are basically Indian weddings with like too much alcohol and like <laughs> completely crazy, you know? Um, My favorite part of that uh, entire part of the world is uh, there's one mentality uh, that just, every time I hear it just cracks me up and it's uh, at some point at an event they say uh, okay get rid of the alcohol and go get the beer and the wine (laughs) that's true right and they're talking about getting rid of the liquor and then getting beer and wine and to me the first time I ever heard it I just started dying laughing I said excuse me (laughs) I have um, like when I grew up I had like Russian family friends who's who said that they started like when they came to rest of like Western Europe they were actually excited about finally drinking healthy drinks like beer. <laughs> so yeah, it's a, it's a thing. 
I love it. Oh, if I get a uh, if I get a bear to uh, to any event as part of these festivities, then uh, then I'll be happy. So let's see what yeah. uh, what I can pull off. Um, personally, I'm super excited about your wedding, and I'm super excited about the fact that you're doing a Bulgarian wedding, a proper one. And I'm also super excited that you still don't comprehend what you're getting into with this. And I hope that somebody in your uh, fiance's family is actually taking this as like basically a, a wild card to go all out bonkers and just like freak you out about this. Not only is somebody in her family, I'm sure she's doing the same yeah. thing. So we're going to see how this plays out. But uh, I, I think uh, we are probably going to end up having two uh, two separate events, one in the United States and one in Bulgaria. So the uh, something tells me the Bulgarian one's going to be I want to come crazier. to the Bulgarian one. I don't even care about the U.S. one. <laughs> If it's close to any Bulgarian wedding I have been to, like it. Maybe uh, that's what we'll do is we'll have an open invite. Anyone who can make it to Bulgaria can come. Yeah, honestly. <laughs> All right, man. Listen, thank you so much for coming in and, uh, and doing this. Um, I, I think uh, a lot of people are going to find this super valuable, uh, and then we'll have to uh, to do it again as uh, as you kind of continue to uh, go down this path of remote work and uh, and the work at AngelList. Cool. Thanks for having me. Hey, everyone. Pop here. If you like this episode of Off The Chain and want to help us take crypto to the top of the Apple, Spotify, and other podcast charts, please do us a favor and rate, review, and subscribe. To review, simply go to the Off The Chain homepage, scroll down until you see the five blank stars. Taking 15 seconds to fill those stars in and leave a quick review goes a long way in helping us take the entire crypto ecosystem to the top of the charts. I appreciate you listening and see you next time on Off The Chain.